we are continuing our service, our sermon in uh, Mark today. So please open your Bibles to Mark 8, verses 1 to 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them will have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. And, they, and he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And they were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away and immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanthula. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? And how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And, he, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Well, hey, uh, last week we started Advent and we said our goal in Advent was in some measure simple, or it sounds simple. It was that we might see Jesus. And that may sound simple, but it is anything but that. It's actually not that easy. Um, we've been in the Gospel of Mark since September. And Mark's thesis statement, beginning of Mark, is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This is his statement. This is who Jesus is. And now we're in this section of Mark in which people are looking at Jesus, staring at him, and they're not seeing him for who he is. And it's stunning. Last week, we saw an example of faith, this Syrophoenician woman. This very, it was a, it's an unlikely place to find faith, and she looks at Jesus, and here she doesn't rely on her goodness or her status because she knows she can't. She relies on the goodness of Jesus, and she encounters the real Jesus. This week, we look at faith from another side, another angle. In fact, uh, it's kind of the opposite. Um, have, have any of you ever taken your smartphone or iPhone and done the inverted mode? Uh, it's where all the colors on your phone are opposite. So the light is dark and the dark is light. It's, 
It's a rather trippy experience, to be honest, when you do it. Uh, I maybe tried it for about an hour, and I was like, I can't do this anymore. I need to go back the way it was. And I would say this section of Mark is the inverted mode of faith. Because the thread through the entire passage is unbelief. It's all unbelief. You know, the very last line, Jesus is looking at his disciples, and he says, do you not yet understand? In other words, don't you get it? So, this passage is so helpful because actually when you invert it and you look at unbelief, it actually helps you understand what it takes to see him. So three things this morning. We're going to see the root of unbelief. Secondly, the danger of unbelief. And then thirdly, the antidote to unbelief. So let's pray and we'll get in. Father, um, just pray now that you would illuminate our eyes to the person of Jesus by your Holy Spirit through your word. And we pray now that you would help us with our unbelief. Amen. Well, the root of unbelief. Um, so leading up to the section, this is like the exact halfway point in the Gospel of Mark. And lean up to the section, we have seen Jesus teach with astounding authority. We have seen him heal. We have seen him raise someone from the dead. We have seen him cast out unclean spirits. And this has not been done in secret. Like, everybody in this passage that's in here, the Pharisees, even Herod who's mentioned, has heard about, they've heard or they've seen all the things that Jesus has done. There is so much evidence before their eyes that this Jesus is not ordinary. And yet, everyone in this passage is struggling to see Jesus. So, for example, let's go to the end of the passage with the disciples. Look at verses 17 and 18. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Notice what Jesus is saying there. He's, he's saying, guys, you've been with me this whole time. You've got two eyeballs. You've got two ears. You've heard, you've seen, and yet you still don't get it. And then Jesus continues, and he goes, he's like, guys, let's do a recap of what just happened, okay? Like back in chapter 6, remember I fed the 5,000? Uh, how, many, how many loaves and fish do we have? And they, they recount it, like, exactly. He goes, now let's, let's recount what just happened now before we got on this boat. I fed the 4,000. How many loaves do we have? Seven. And how many do you have left? Seven. It's like he's, it's just like, you know, it's like when I was in pre-calc and it was like the same thing where like, explain it to me 10 times, I'm still going to be like, I still don't get it, right? And Jesus comes to the end and says, do you not yet understand the evidence is all there, but you don't see it. Um, the Pharisees in this passage, they're actually the poster child of unbelief. In verses 11 to 13, look at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. 
But remember, the Pharisees, they've seen Jesus do all these things. And they show up and they say, Jesus, it's not enough. The word arguing there, it's this, the grammar is one of ongoing argument. They are in opposition to Jesus. And before we go any further, what we've seen so far is that the root of unbelief is not this. It is not that there's not enough evidence. Think about this for a moment. This is really important. The root of unbelief is not that there's not evidence. There is. There's plenty of it. But they still don't see him. So what is it? What is the root of unbelief? If it's not evidence, why don't they see him? Well, let me zero in for a moment on the Pharisees. If Jesus is the Christ, if they accept that, that's who he is, that's who he says he is, guess what that means for them? It means they're not in charge. Did you understand that for a moment? Like, Jesus, the very presence of who he is, being the king, it means if they accept that, it means they must trust him with everything. And the reason why they oppose him, why they're arguing with him, is because they want to be in charge. And brothers and sisters, that's the root of unbelief in each of our lives. Or to put it another way, their problem and our problem is not evidence. In Romans 1, Paul says that creation itself is enough to reveal that there is a God and that you ought to give thanks to Him. But we choose not to. And let me say this, some of you this morning, you are exploring Christianity and you are weighing the evidence for that. And that is a worthy investment. But sometimes, sometimes those exploring are holding out. And it's, and it's not because of the evidence. It's because you know if you trust him, it'll have to change your life. you still want to continue to live the way you want to live. It's actually interesting. Um, one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis is his, he has this quote in which he, he describes what happened when he became a Christian that night. And listen to what he says. Again, he was an atheist, became a Christian. He says this, I gave in and admitted that God was God, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. <laughs> Do you notice that? He recognizes to come and put your faith in Christ means I'm no longer in charge. And for a moment, Christian, let's, let's talk for a moment here. Pastor Dave Bisgrove puts it this way. A couple principles here to think through. Uh, think about this. When, in Christianity, there's this notion that to, it is more blessed to give than receive. It's clear. 
It's in the text all over the place. And the Old Testament talks about tithing 10%. The New Testament doesn't talk about that, but it's really clear. Like actually, the amount of generosity we see in the gospel actually should propel us to even more generosity. And yet, oftentimes, if we're honest, we don't want to give. Not that much. Because if we give that much, that would change our lifestyle. That would change what we could do. We still want to continue to live the way we want to live. Or how about this one? <clears throat> Think about community. It's clear in Scripture that Christians are to love one another. And that's a great sentiment. And then you get in a living room with people who are other Christians, and you realize this is really hard because they're not like me. Their personalities, their experiences, their background, their age. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, you, you, there, there can be excuses. I don't want to love this person. This is really hard. This is going to cause a sacrifice with my time and my energy. And listen, sometimes, right, there, there are circumstances where we're not saying this is exactly how it means to look, but to trust Jesus with everything you have means that all of your life, if he's the king, right, is surrendered to him. And oftentimes, if we're honest, we want to be in charge, right? And that's the root. That's what we see in this passage. Now, how about the danger? Jesus says something in verse 15 that is alarming. <clears throat> he says this, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. <clears throat> so each Friday, uh, my family will test you that I make homemade pizza. And it starts with warm water, four teaspoons of yeast, and then six tablespoons of sugar, and then we just let it do its thing for about 10 minutes. And then I throw in the flour, the salt, and the oil. And an hour and a half after the bread maker does its magical thing, I come back and there is this loaf of bread that is just almost, it's popping out of the maker because I'm trying to make more than it's actually you're supposed to. But anyway, and that's a really good thing. Leaven, yeast is a wonderful thing there. It's great for bread dough. But Jesus is saying here, there's, there's something within Herod and the Pharisees, that if it gets in you, you need to watch out. And uh, what is it? Let me put it this way. One pastor is so helpful. He said this, what the Pharisees and Herod have is its unbelief in stage four terminal cancer stage, basically. The Pharisees and Herod, they have unbelief and it's stage four. Uh, and what's incredible about this is think for a moment. Jesus is calling out two different groups of the day. I mean, the Pharisees, they're the religious conservative side of things. And you've got Herod, who's the man, who's the one who's the oppressor. And notice Jesus says, there's actually a way to be religious. And there's another way to be over here and be mainly secular. And actually both of them if this gets in you, you'll become like them. And what's interesting is they're similar. 
they're exactly similar. They, they, they do it for different, it looks different on the surface, but they're, they're similar. Here's what it is. Their unbelief is so deep that they use their power and their influence to exploit others and serve themselves. That's what their stage four unbelief has produced in them. Herod. We saw this a couple weeks ago. A few weeks back, actually. Uh, John the Baptist calls him out for his, basically, sexual immorality, sleeping with his, uh, marrying his uh, brother's wife. And John calls him out. And what does Herod do? You're not in charge, I'm in charge. Beheads him. Don't tell me what to do. Just brute power. You get in my way, you're done. The Pharisees, in Luke 12, it says, Jesus calls their leaven, their, their way of life, hypocrisy. It means they look, they look really good on the outside. They say all the right things. They have a lot of actions that look really religious, but on the inside it says, they're full of greed and wickedness. It's religious corruption. And they, they're using their position religiously to gain status. And so when Jesus says, watch out, he's saying, be careful that you don't become like them. And listen, if you know anything about leaven or yeast, you know, it's not something that happens immediately, right? Like it takes place over time. Um, a few years back, there was an op-ed in the New York Times, and it opened with this statement by this person who wrote it. In my last year on Wall Street, my bonus was $3.6 million, and I was angry because it wasn't big enough. I was 30 years old, had no children to raise, no debts to pay, no excuse me, goal in mind. I wanted more money for exactly the same reason. An alcoholic needs another drink. I was addicted. He tells the story of starting on the trading floor for an internship with a desire to be in some level rich. But he had a different idea of what wealth meant. And then he chronicled about what happened while he was there. At one point, he received a $40,000 bonus, and he was ecstatic. But then he heard the following week that someone only a few years older was hired for 900000 And he grew excited about how much was available to make. And so he began to work like a maniac, climbing the ladder. And four years later, he got an offer of $1.75 million a year. And he talks about how underneath all of this was because he felt so important at that moment. Why? Because he could call up any restaurant and get a table. And he talked about how underneath it, it was this desire for power. It was a desire for significance. And it was turning them into this person that he began to recognize was so twisted. It's the leaven. Now, you and I may not be on the floor of Wall Street, but that doesn't matter, right? Because the stage four unbelief comes in many forms. You know, Dane Ortland writes this, there is a deep inadequacy within 
and he's talking about all of us, the sense of not measuring up, we medicate that deep, nagging sense of insufficiency through the swelling bank account, the perfect face, the sculpted body, the number of social media followers, the reputation, the beautiful spouse, the famous friends, the sense of humor, the appearance of intelligence, the political outmaneuvering and one-upmanship, the sexual exploits, or even the upstanding moral resume. And what I love about this quote is it hits every angle. It hits every angle. At the end of the day, if you let unbelief fester, it turns you in to a life of selfishness and of using others. And here's the deal. When Jesus says, watch out, you know what he's saying there? He's really asking this question of each of us. He's saying, who are you becoming? What's shaping you? All right. Lastly, the antidote. Um, you know, one of the things that's fascinating about this passage is how Jesus, along the way, each moment of the way, in the midst of unbelief, his character is like this, it, it is a light in a dark world of unbelief. Notice, for example, in verse 2, when he says that people have been with him for three days, it says, it says this, he has, com he has compassion on them. We've talked about this before, but that word compassion, it means that Jesus is very emotionally intelligent. It means that Jesus cares. It means that Jesus actually looks at their plight and he enters into it. Jesus' character is not someone who looks at you and says, suck it up. It's not Jesus. Notice this, in verse 12, after the Pharisees are arguing with him, his response is this, he sighs deeply. Notice, think about this, these are people that oppose him, and Jesus is not returning hate with hate. Jesus isn't even going to the point where he's so frustrated with him that, that, they're, that he's going to say, you're worthless. He doesn't even do that. He is grieved to the depth of his being. Even in the midst of opposition, he shows this deep compassion. And then the finally disciples, at the very end, you know, he's having the conversation about the bread and the miracles. And Jesus is exasperated, and rightly so, because he's saying, guys, seriously? Like, you should, I, I thought you'd be further along than this. There is that tone there. But notice this. He will not leave them. In the midst of their doubt and their unbelief and not getting it, he's not leaving them. He is walking right next to them. And this may sound simple, but um, the antidote to unbelief is actually Jesus himself. That is where we must go. That is where we must look the one who is compassionate and faithful and will not leave you in the midst of your unbelief. The one, listen, who looks at the situation in your life right now in which you're struggling to surrender to him, to trust him with, to know that he actually cares about that. It actually matters to him. 
Listen, even in the moments in which you are trying to run your life, think about this. The moments where you're like, I'm in charge. Do you understand Jesus is still compassionate and faithful then? And how do we know that? Because at the end of Mark, we know where this is all going. The compassionate, faithful king, what does he do? He lays it all out on the cross. The king dies for you and for me. He gives himself up completely. Listen, and that's actually, that's actually the key. Listen, if, if you, like me, struggle with unbelief, this is where you must look. You must look at the one who gives all of himself to you, who surrenders himself to the Father and gives himself to you. And that is actually what enables you to surrender all of your life to him. Because you know he's not going to exploit you. You know he's not there to use you. You know it's actually for your good. If you're not a Christian this morning, let me ask you this question. What is it that's holding you back from coming to Jesus and trusting him? What is it? What part of your life are you holding on to? Christian, let me ask you this. What would it look like right now in your life to trust him with everything? What are you afraid to surrender? What are you afraid to lay down? Um, think about it for a moment. Because this is actually what changes you. The gospel is what changes you. So think for a moment. If you're struggling in this moment to think about being generous, giving, then what you need to do, you need to look at the one who has not tithed his blood, but has given his entire self for you. And it's when you look at him and what he's done, that's how you surrender your finances to him. It's not to earn a spot. It's not what gets you in, but it's looking at that. Laying, him laying down his life for you. And in light of that, then you living for him. Or how about this? In those really hard relationships that you're in, the ones that you want to just tap out and say, I'd like to find some new friends. Did you understand? You and Jesus are so different from one another. He is holy. You are not. He is holy, I am not. And yet, what does he do in the midst of that relationship? He just keeps coming. He keeps pursuing you, loving you where you are. And we see that all the way in and through to the cross. The root of unbelief is wanting to be in charge. But the antidote to unbelief is looking at the one who is in charge and what he has done for you, and entrusting yourself to him. So let me ask you this before we close. Brothers and sisters, what is the Lord calling you 
to trust him with today? What is he asking you to surrender to him today? Let's pray. God, you are the light of every heart that sees you. You are the life of every soul that loves you. We pray that you would pour into our hearts and so fill them with your love that there is no room left for our idols. Lord, help us to no longer live for other things. Lord, may you be the joy of our heart. And we pray that you'd help us to teach us to serve and to trust you alone. Amen.